Hello and welcome to a very special episode of Zooming In on Hate. This episode was recorded as a live webinar on the 20th of October featuring Julia Moser, EU Public Policy Manager at Twitter, and Carlos Hernandez at Chevaria, Head of Public Policy and Institutional Development at Maldita in Spain. Of course, we all know that there have been some developments at Twitter since Elon Musk purchased the platform. So maybe some of the comments and findings you will hear have changed at this point. Still, we feel that there is plenty of interesting content. So with that in mind, sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Welcome to Zooming In on Hate, a podcast series that brings together the brightest minds to figure out solutions to hate speech and disinformation. Throughout this series, we regularly speak to various voices from tech, from civil society, from academia, law enforcement, to try to pin down and identify the latest social media trends. And this podcast is a series um, as part of the European Observatory of Online Hate, or EOOH in short. And today we've got a very exciting interactive episode with an audience, um, because today we're speaking to Julia Moser, who is the EU Public Policy Manager at Twitter, and Carlos Hernandez Echevarria, who is Head of Public Policy and Institutional Development at Maldita in Spain. And just so you know who we are, I'm Lydia Alcuri from Texgain. And my name is Jordi Nijenhuis from Dare to be Grey. So it's a huge pleasure to welcome Julia uh, to join us on her inaugural visit to Zooming In on Hate. Um, Julia, thanks a million for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. So to get us started, Julia, can you tell us a bit about your role at Twitter and what does it involve? Absolutely. Happy to. And once again, thanks for the invitation. It's it's a pleasure to be here and to see so many familiar faces as well. I can start perhaps by quickly recapping what the public policy team does, which is where I belong. So public policy works with governments, policymakers and civil society on public policy issues. Uh, we also work on Twitter for good, uh, which is our philanthropic branch and enables us to both strengthen and support the work of civil society. And in my role specifically, so I'm based in the EU office and works with mostly on EU issues, focusing on two key topics, um, hate speech and disinformation. Now, what this means in practice, on the hate speech side, it, uh, it includes working on the EU code of conduct on illegal hate speech, or working on more under the umbrella of the code of conduct on illegal hate speech, including the monitoring exercises, as well as working on strengthening the relationship with civil society across the EU from different member states. And the work on this information is very much mirrored to that in a sense that I've been working on the EU code of practice on code of practice on disinformation, as well as again, building relationships with different stakeholders across the EU. And in connection to my role, I perhaps it's also good to touch upon why we do this work, which is which is ultimately connected to Twitter's mission, which is protecting the health of public conversation. So everything that's in these fields and on other fields, I also touch upon gender-based violence uh, and related topics, they all connect to this underlying mission. 
Great, thanks, Julia. Um, so we've had COVID, then the war in, the, in Ukraine. Social media has really been in the eye of the storm over the past few years. And so can you tell us a little bit about how Twitter has been working through these extraordinary times? Yeah, I feel that I pretty much feel that extraordinary times are the are the new normal times and I'm only half joking, but um half jokes aside, you're you're right. We went from COVID to Ukraine. We had still have monkeypox. The climate crisis is basically on our doorstep, if not in the living room already. So we do we do live from crisis, uh, from one crisis to another. And all this inevitably translates to social media and translates to Twitter as well. And I think Twitter here is quite unique in a sense that it's it's literally what's happening. Events unfold on, on Twitter in real time, and which is also the reason why it's the largest source of real-time social media data. And it's also public, as we know, we don't you know need an account to to see a tweet. They can flow freely, they can be embedded to to different articles as well. And it's open in a sense that First of all, you don't need an account, as I mentioned, but also politicians, NGOs, people can connect and converse um, freely. So it has been quite fascinating to see all the efforts that go into maintaining the health of the public conversation, whether that's through um, updates to, to different products, introducing our new reporting flow, which is something that we've um, released this June, or coming up with new policies like the crisis misinformation policy to to to, to give a concrete example. But I think throughout these crises, uh, crisis that we've had, I a lot of the discussions have focused on on content moderation. And just as we go into the topic of obviously hate speech and disinformation, I want to start thinking together and also share a bit more about our approach in that sense especially as we step away from the uh, binary approach of either taking down or leaving up content, which works well for illegal content. We know that, um, whether that's illegal hate speech or terrorist content, but it gets more complicated when it comes to legal and but harmful content. And it's where we need to come up with more creative or more concrete um, solutions. So when it comes to crisis, and that will be how I will try to wrap up my answer with that, um, and particularly misleading information, our focus has been on how content is discovered and amplified, as opposed to just removal alone. And would you believe that um, it's both more sustainable and, and also more effective, but effective in a, in a holistic way, if um, if we focus on limiting the number of people who can encounter harmful content, and there are numerous ways to to do that, elevating credible information is one way. At the same time, sort of limiting the spread of 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 misleading or potentially misleading information, but also efforts towards algorithmic transparency, more user control over the experience on the platform, or exploring community based um, moderation which is something that we've been experimenting with, with uh, Birdwatch. So these all help in a more nuanced uh, way and more nuanced responses, ideally at scale when it comes to, to content moderation. And just to give an example, because I feel like this has been a slightly uh, theoretical, but I also hope that you know knowing the expertise of our audience is something that, that is um, 
uh, expected and, and welcomed. Um, one way of elevating credible information, an example from, from the war in Ukraine, we've set up early on Twitter moments that's a curated, um, curating authoritative and credible information of the latest updates and news uh, in connection to, to the war. And these have received more than uh, 38 billion impressions, which shows the impact that elevating information can do. And as every time that we talk about content moderation, I also want to touch upon the preventive part uh, of this. So just to, to mention, really without going into details, but happy to answer questions on that towards the end, um, some of the safety features that we have aimed to actually prevent hate from happening and abuse from happening. A very concrete example of that would be our prompts that aim to, recon to, to make you reconsider your tweet before, before sharing it, if it includes potentially harmful or offensive language. And these are the sort of like behavior nudges that we see that work really well. Um, and our research shows that 30% of, of people actually reconsider, uh, change or delete their tweet instead of tweeting it out. So that's to sort of give a few examples of the of the various actions that we've been we've been focusing on, not just in the past year, but also beforehand. Thanks. That's uh, that sounds really interesting, and I'm sure we'll we'll zoom in a bit more on that topic. Um, but I'm I'm wondering, as a practitioner, I think many of us have seen uh, an increase in disinformation, hate speech, toxic language on on the social media platforms, especially since the pandemic uh, struck. So would you say this is a response to that different hate landscape you're seeing on Twitter? And and how, from your perspective, do you think that the level and nature of hate has changed on Twitter over the past couple of years? So I would I would say there is a short and a long answer to that, and I will go for the long one, but I'm happy to give away, but I'm happy to give away the the short one as well. And it refers um to what I said in the in the beginning that Twitter is what's happening. So to the extent that these things change in the world and they translate to social media, yes, it's it's reflected there. But before going into, into further details, I also want to recall here that uh, everyone should feel safe expressing their point of view on, on Twitter. And we do prohibit behavior that harasses, intimidates, or intends to shame and degrade others. And we know that if because of abuse happening, people's ability to express themselves are 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 in jeopardy uh, because of because of abuse. So we are aiming to to prevent that happening through policies, and I will try to keep the policy part um, as short as possible. They are available on, on on in our health center, but we are committed to addressing abuse and prevent it from happening, whether that's motivated by hatred, uh, prejudice, intolerance, especially for historically marginalized um, communities. Now, in terms of changes, uh, narratives and trends, and this is something that a topic that we regularly discuss also under the, uh, uh, in various NGO meetings, we do see changes, sometimes country or region specific, sometimes on a global scale as well, and they do also every now and then translate into policy updates eventually. And some of the highlights I shared are from our hateful conduct policy, abusive behavior policy. There are a lot of sub policies there. I do encourage everyone to, to read it, but I know that many of you who are present here, at least in person and not listening to this later on, are almost intimately familiar with these um, policies. 
So when it comes to numbers connected, uh, we share every six months uh, updated numbers in our transparency center, which builds upon the very first transparency report we released 10 years ago and includes numbers on specific policy violations of the policies that I that I mentioned earlier. Um, I also want to, to, to note that with the new reporting flow that we have um, recently introduced, we also plan to capture better the experience of people as opposed to just the, the policy violations, but happy to, to come to that later on. So some of the numbers that we most recently released would be um, violations of our hateful conduct policy, and we suspended more than 100,000 accounts in the last reporting period. And for our abusive behavior policy, we've actually more than 900,000 accounts. But and all these numbers are are there. I knowing the 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 audience and those who are present here, I think it's a shared understanding. But obviously, happy to to hear reflections later on. That when it comes to addressing and and working on hate, the work is never really done. It's never really over, which which is why we continue to engage on a regular basis with civil society. As mentioned before, here in the EU, under the umbrella and beyond the Code of Conduct on Illegal Hate Speech, but also globally through our Trust and Safety Council. And here I want to mention just, just briefly how the code has been really key in solidifying the relationship over more than six years now with civil society and facilitated not just a two-way dialogue so we can discuss trends and narratives as well as share more in our approach and policy updates and go into details about these, um, but also building trust in the field and really working towards a shared goal. I think it has been really um, a lot of progress on the front. And also as a, a similar process happens with the Trust and Safety Council, obviously it's on a global scale, so that's uh, slightly different, but we do engage their organizations that are experts in order to help people feel safer on the platform. I, I completely agree, Julia, that the, the job is never done. And I'm sure everybody in the room agrees or anybody listening that it's never done. And the nature of hate is constantly changing in very innovative ways, not necessarily a positive, innovative way, innovative way unfortunately. But I'm really pleased that Twitter's changed its reporting mechanism. I'd love to hear a little bit more about how um, what the changes are and how does that compare to other platforms? Um, I will go with the assumption here that everyone is an experienced reporter and has already experienced some of the frustrations that can that can uh, occur when we're trying to report something. And this is a feedback that we took into account together with uh, research and came to an understanding that the, the previous reporting process didn't help in in or wasn't making enough people feel safer or or hurt, which is why we decided to to change the entire process in a way that it simplifies the reporting because it lifts the burden from the individual having to be the one to interpret the violation at hand. So instead of that, it asks them or you uh, what happened. And the um, the metaphor that works best, I think, to to describe it, since I'm not doing a presentation and clicking through slides and showing the different steps, it's really similar to when you when you see a doctor. You don't um, go in there and say you broke your leg. Well, you definitely don't 
walk in there if you break your leg. But let's say you get to see a doctor and your leg hurts and you want the doctor to identify what happened. So they're going to ask questions like, does it hurt here? Do you feel that? What, what exactly happens? So it's not you diagnosing the issue. And this is what we've tried to introduce with the um, new reporting flow, knowing especially that when people are reporting certain content, chances are that they're experiencing something unsettling or disturbing, and it's just not the right time to ask them to figure out which policy exactly um, has been violated. Now, we also know that in some cases, the uh, reported tweet doesn't exactly break a rule, but bend it. And I think this is the part where it's extremely relevant for those working in the field of, of hate speech, where the gray spectrum or gray zone has been part of the vocabulary um, ever since we started discussing online hate speech. So we know that a lot of the content might fall into, into the gray spectrum, which might not violate a certain policy, but it causes an upsetting experience. And we, with the new reporting flow, we're able to capture that and to learn from that. So we're able to get a more firsthand information about the very experience that's happening on, on the platform that can ultimately then feed back to, to us to devise better actions and better responses to, to that type of content. And I think what's also important, not just in terms of this, this um, update and the reporting flow, but in general, um, what I want to emphasize here is that we don't develop these uh, in a complete vacuum. It's not just us on our, on our, on our own. And also for this, the reporting flow, um, we've done a lot of research on procedural justice, trauma-based approach, and throughout the research and design process, engaged uh, people from marginalized communities. Uh, we've had women on, uh, on the team, people of color, people, uh, members of the LGBTQ plus community. So the overall principle has really been, we solve an issue for the outliers or we, we, we design something for the outliers and that way we can solve the issue for the majority. So I wouldn't necessarily compare it to other types of uh, reporting flows, but it's certainly very different from our previous uh, reporting in terms of the approach, uh, the symptoms-based approach, providing the learning opportunity and capturing better the, the experience of people. And we've also seen an increase in the number of actionable reports, which is, which which tells us that it's actually working, and we're exciting to to have this out in action. That that sounds very exciting indeed. Um, thinking about those gray areas, you know, with hate speech, sometimes it it can be quite easy to define what what's hate speech, what's not. With this information, it's it obviously becomes a bit more gray. So considering the, the influx of disinformation we've seen following the war of Ukraine, a lot of disinformation, a lot of propaganda, um, can you maybe tell us a bit about how Twitter is addressing these issues? Yes, absolutely. Um, I mentioned in the beginning um, all the efforts that, that go into protecting the health of the conversation. And of course, uh, a large portion of these efforts, especially in the in the past 10, 10 months since the end of mid-February have been focused around um, around Ukraine. And so we do believe that, that we have a responsibility to the public. And through, so our actions have sort of focused on three or aimed at three overarching goals. Uh, the first being promoting safety, 
Um, second, um, elevating credible and authoritative information and also supporting uh, communities. So when it comes to, uh, and this is what I, I, I sort of touched upon it um, already in the beginning that elevating credible information is something that we've been doing through our prompts, through Twitter moments, um, uh, Twitter events at the same time. So that's the sort of, the idea is that that you, you're more likely to encounter credible information at the same time, limit or reduce the reach of misleading information. And for the for the limiting aspect, a lot has been um, done due to our labels and the labels that we apply to state affiliated media accounts. Um, which again, I'm happy to to talk about in more details. But there are also more more organic sort of organic ways of of elevating credible information. I just want to bring an example from from the relatively early days of the war. I think it was during springtime that the EU External Action Service together with the commission shared uh, a long tweet thread that aimed to highlight um, information for people fleeing Ukraine on their rights and possibilities in EU member states. And that was just simply a brilliant way of highlighting from a very credible source, the most crucial information so that those who are on the run can immediately come across and find the information that's the most necessary and vital in their situation. Um, in terms of approaches and uh, since the war has has started, I know demonetization is not necessarily a topic often discussed in the in the hate speech field, but I do want to to mention here because it's part of the 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 online information um, ecosystem. So we've as the war erupted, we paused ads temporarily in Ukraine and in Russia. Um, and we also demonetized search terms related to the war again, with the with the aim of, of keeping a, a healthy um environment for the for the conversations for RT and Sputnik which have been in the in the sort of a center of the discussions and attention for a long time we did ban them for advertising in 2017 already so when that happened and we foresaw a certain amount um from them for advertising, we instead donated that amount to organizations dealing with disinformation and civic integrity. And for political ads, well, in 2019, we banned political ads because we do believe that the reach of political messages should be earned and not bought. And to to wrap up, I mean, it's an enormous question, so it's hard to wrap up. But maybe just one more one more point here is uh is on data disclosure and transparency so specifically in relation to the war but already before actually from from 2018 we've had our state back information operations um archive online it's public what's a public archive the largest of its kind in the industry and with that we've recently transitioned to a different slightly different approach so now we're sharing uh data through the twitter moderation research um consortium but I wanted to note that since it's a it's a it's a large component of the field that um, where we're also sharing more information and data with researchers and journalists and civil society. And connected to that, Julia, I'd love to hear about um, what Twitter is doing about state affiliated media in particular. So for for state affiliated media, we do uh, apply labels. Um, 
in certain countries and and or maybe it's even even more important to start with why we do that it's not just the, the the transparency and thinking that in terms of conflicts especially and crisis access to factual and reliable information and knowing the source of your information is is even more vital but the labels also are part of our efforts of providing more context on twitter as well as enabling informed uh, decisions and an informed experience on the on the platform so we've been applying state affiliated uh media labels to um various outlets what's relatively new and has been rolled out in the past 10 months is that it's no longer just on the account level but also on the on the tweet level and so that's that's for the state affiliated media media uh, accounts and tweets where these labels would be would be applied. And we actually have applied these labels to more than nine hundred thousand uh, unique tweets uh, since the beginning of the war. And when these labels are applied, that means that the tweet will not be amplified, so it will not be recommended on your home timeline or surfaced anywhere else. And we've seen as a result of this 30% of reduction in the reach of the content. So it seems to be uh, um, working. Well, I see Jordi nodding <laughs> in an impressive way. So I would say um, we're also happy to see, see these results. And we also, in addition to that, well, not state affiliated media per se, but given the experience in the recent crisis, we also introduced um, a policy update which is in case that there is a there is a state that engages in an armed conflict and at the same time limits the information uh, the free flow of information we would also apply government labels that come with the same sort of consequences so that, that these uh accounts and their tweets would not be recommended amplified um anywhere through twitter and that connects to this over overarching theme of how do we elevate credible information at the same time reduce and limit the spread of, of potentially misleading information um and we've seen that uh well our early results show that the number of accounts that interact with these tweets or engage with these tweets decreased by more than 40 percent and also the engagements with the specific tweets have also um, decreased with around 25 percent Obviously, this is something that we keep working on and looking at and, and, and researching uh, constantly, but it just shows that, you know, sort of as an example as well to our approach of content in general. That, that sounds uh, pretty impressive, I must say. Thank you for sharing. Um, before we move to our next guest, I do have one more question. Um, I think you already gave us a little bit of a teaser about other takes that Twitter have on, on tackling issues like hate speech disinformation. Um, is there anything else you would like to share before we move to Carlos? Um, absolutely. I will just use then this closing question to point to maybe a, a trailer for our next uh, uh, discussion, but to point to a lot of resources that, that are available in terms of, if anyone is interested in learning more about the community-driven um, moderation, that we've been experimenting with. Uh, it's called Birdwatch. Uh, there's a specific blog post how we are rolling that out step by step. It's a phased experiment to see how it works. And it's uh, something that I think it's fascinating to, to explore. 
And I would also point to some of the safety features uh, that we have in place and safety tools that can be used for anyone, whether in hate speech or disinformation field, or just feeling like, you know, would like to secure their account better and, and to have a slightly different experience on, on the platform. And if there are more questions and thoughts about Ukraine, our blog post uh, titled Our Ongoing Approach to Ukraine includes a lot more metrics and numbers that I could I could share now, as well as detailed uh, actions. So I'm happy to, to invite uh, people to check it out. And in any case, the Twitter safety handle on Twitter, as well as our policy handle, always shares the latest updates and, and news that I just uh, highlighted a few items from. Thank you. Thanks a million, Julia. Thanks for, for joining us and for sharing what Twitter is up to at the moment. So we'd love to give a lovely warm welcome to Carla Sanandes Echevarria, hope I got it right, Carla, who is the Coordination and Public Policies at, and Institution of Development at maldita.es. Carlos, you're very welcome. Can you tell us a little bit about your role within Maldita? Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Uh, I, I, I cherish the opportunity to come here and talk about this these issues that are very, very, very important for everyone, but for me, they are very, very close to, to my heart, I could say, even if it sounds cheesy. So uh, what I do in Maldita, uh, for starters, Maldita is a, is a nonprofit, it's a fact checker. It, it started uh, as a purely fact checking operation, you could say, but uh, we, are, we are a foundation that fights disinformation in many, in many different ways. So what I do here, is a public policy and how do we understand public policy is that it was already long ago that we decided like it was difficult uh, not to do you know if we wanted to our work to be really relevant and to get to more people maybe people that didn't think of themselves as uh, as uh, you know following fact checking uh, uh, very often that by doing policy we could affect um, more people we could get them to action we could you know verify this information so basically this is what i do i help institutions and people uh, that are interested in fighting this information those who are not very uh interested in it i i try to get them interested and uh, obviously uh, i have to focus on those with the with the most uh capacity to to have an impact no, in, in, in fighting misinformation online. So this is this is what we do at Mandita and what I do personally. Thanks, Carlos. That sounds very interesting. Um, to maybe help us understand a bit better what you're focusing on, um, what kind of disinformation patterns and trends are you focusing on and what kind of areas of concern do you have? Well, it's true that things have uh, have changed quite a lot in the past three years. Um, the pandemic came to, to 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 challenge many of the assumptions, and and uh, and and really uh, changed the whole overview of the of the of this information online. In my in my opinion, so maybe fringe groups are not so fringe anymore. Uh, they have found ways to to you know to get to newer audiences uh, using the pandemic that was obviously a, you know an event commanding such a wide attention in society. Many of those groups that were already pushing all kinds of disinformation, they you know quickly went into vaccine misinformation or or cavil conspiracies about you know. And uh, so they were able to connect with people and audiences that otherwise they weren't really interested before. But right now they are. 
So now when these groups are making, are taking the next step and talking about the next conspiracy, they are bringing all those people with them. So that for me has been, has been quite, quite a, a change. And, and especially if we talk about these big organized groups of disinformation pushers and, and you know, networks of, of dissemination and creation of disinformation, they really have stepped up their game. They are better at, the, at what they do. They, they are much uh, better connected, you know, well-financed. They are more committed than they used to be. They, they are, you know, honestly, uh, better at what they do. That, that's why that's a good reason for the rest of us to also, you know, step up our game and, and, and be more effective because the guys on the other side of the equation, they really took this opportunity at heart and, and you know, they, 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 are, they are doing well. I mean, I, I'm not going to go as far as to say, you know, this, this whole fight of this information, we are losing, but we certainly are not winning. So, you know. At the, on the on the flip side of that, and and I think this is very important because I am an optimist, and I think there there are some strong reasons to be an optimist. And in this, as 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 awful and terrible the pandemic has been, um, it has made people really aware of the risks and dangers of this information. It really, you know, be, before maybe 2020, a lot of people could you know, ration, rationalize this or, 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 or you know, uh, take the, the wrong assumption that yeah, this information is just something that doesn't have, you know, doesn't have a lot of effect in my life. Uh, I really don't care about this because this information is about, I don't know, uh, journalists shaming other journalists or politicians, uh, you know, having, um, you know, being red faced after being caught on a lie and, and, and really, this, this, the whole pandemic, like what, what brought to our attention and to everyone's attention is that really this information has very real harms to society. Also in, in your area of expertise, I don't need to tell you, but hate speech and, and this information for those purposes. It's really a huge danger for, for many things we, 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 we love and we want to defend. And, and it's not about just and like an elite of well-informed people discussing about a, a dark statistic that wasn't uh, rightly cited. It's, it's really about life and death in, in, many, in many cases. So I think that that building of public awareness that, you know, that so many million people, I mean, just, just to give you a, a short example um, about fact checkers that we, we do our thing and, 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 and we are happy about that. And for example, in Maldita, so a good month before the pandemic could end with, I don't know, 1 million unique users in the website, which is good, you know, it's good. But then the pandemic comes, it's March, 2020, and you have 10 million. Because a lot of people who never thought of themselves as being interested in this information or, or fact-checking, you know, they, they were feeling the hit. They were really into, you know, seeing the, the, the importance of, of, of fighting this information, of getting to quality information. And those people are not going to be there all the time, but the same reflection that I was uh, trying to mention before about uh, huge uh, groups of these, informer, of these information pushers getting to new audiences, that should serve for us as well, like for, for people to get to know us and, and, and really care about this. So I think that's that's like the flip side of the, of the pandemic in that sense, that a lot of people no longer 
uh, lives in this kind of having the luxury of not caring about this information. I think most people right now can, can really assess how important this is. I'm going to go away from that lovely positive thought, Carlos, and bring you back to the negativity of disinformation, sorry. But it, <laughs> it, has, it has sadly been weaponized over the last couple of cast uh, last couple of years. Can you talk us through what you've seen? in relation to the weaponization of disinformation. Absolutely. And it's, and it's been, I mean, they are doing it because it works, because, because it really, uh, for some people, uh, I have, I mean, I, I didn't try to be exhaustive, but I, I do think that um, people create disinformation mainly for three reasons. Either they make money out of it, uh, which is something like, you know, getting clicks and, and all that, uh, then on a second, um, they, they might be into it for, for ideological purposes, like, you know, they are looking to other benefits, it, you know, they, they feel like propagating this information helps their cause, so they don't care if it's, if it's lies. And there's this, this third component of maybe they are just trolling everybody and they, they don't have a good reason, but they love to be like, like you know, uh, playing gotcha with, with, the, with the audience. So. I think this information has been weaponized because it has served for those three purposes very well. It's been very effective. And the effects have been so real in the last few years, as, as I was saying, right? Like, like not about, uh, you know, uh, high level politics and, 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 and you know, highbrow discourses on, on the nature of democracy. I, I'm thinking about real harm to real people. I, I'm thinking about those small businesses that have been bankrupt because of this information. We have seen that in, in, in Spain, for example, you know, as a, a, a rumor that, that started making the rounds during the very early times of the pandemic, I'm thinking February uh, 2020, uh, in, in a really a small town, no, no, no bigger than maybe 15,000 people living there. And, uh, and there was this rumor started by someone that, you know, do not buy in this uh, convenience store because it is owned by a by a Chinese migrant, and they are uh, they are you know they have been infected. Just don't go there. And then that voice note gets viral, and that shop has to close in a matter of days. I mean, it's, 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 this is how real it gets. Just because someone decided you know unilaterally to invent this thing, someone really loses you know cannot put food on the table next week so so this is how real it is it has been weaponized in 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 many ways it has cost many people frankly their lives i am i don't want to keep going back to the pandemic but but to provide other other uh, other examples we have seen videos on youtube for example in arabic which is a language that millions and millions of people speak and they have these videos with 1.5 million views that are actually in very plain words telling your grandmother to quit chemotherapy and eat more almonds and let's not kid ourselves people are dying because of those kinds of narratives because people drop chemo and get more sick and, and die so so the, the the ways this has been weaponized but but going more to the point of hate speech we see uh, you know, beyond all the all the incredible danger this represents for democracy in the in the form of of, uh, of polarization and, and you know people fighting each other, we have seen this being weaponized by super engaged communities that will 
take advantage of any opportunity to to advance their 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 ideology or or, or their or their bigotry to be more more precise using this information so uh, we see this all the time we have this very organized very active community of racist people pushing this information in my country and they will take advantage of any opportunity to do just that so so when when it was covid i mean when the public attention was sent was focused on covid they will sharing uh, contents about saying you know we had this uh, small boat coming from northern africa uh, with 20 people in it and they are all infected and they are uh, escaping through the city to to you know and you are going to get uh, infected uh, because of that that was first of all a, a lie that was that was not true but it was also very much a nonsense because at that point uh, the virus was getting to spain from everywhere I mean, when you're by plane from italy from china from everywhere so but the, the, that very very determined decision to produce hoaxes about migrants being to blame for people getting sick this is something we see all the time just to just to go to the most probably outrageous and and and, and even silly example of this we had this volcano eruption in spain so we it was kind of a challenge like we were discussing like how is it possible that these racist communities of of these information pushers are going to use that to promote hate for migrants because it's a volcano it's really no one is to blame but they found a way to do it and they started to produce hoaxes saying like see uh, the people that is being evacuated because of the volcano eruption they are going into these uh, horrible makeshift uh, uh, camps while uh, illegal immigrants are being housed in five-star hotels so they find ways to to kind of uh, take ownership of public attention and then produce this information that serves their purposes. So it's been weaponized in, in, in so many ways in the last in the last couple of years. I, I think in you know from, from very very attention grabbing headlines such as January 6th in the US, uh, you know, when the unthinkable happens and 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 you know and there is a, an, an actual you know uh, attempt to overthrow democracy and, and rule of law from very very small examples that are very concrete but also very very much real in the sense that they have cost uh they, they have even cost lives to people so so yeah it's it's been uh to, to go back to my original point they they are weaponizing this information and and this the, the sad part is that they will continue to do so because it works very well because um many people all of us really at some point in our lives we decide that this thing that aligns with my prejudice about something and my own biases, I am going to share without not knowing if it's true, but I will share it because it kind of aligns with my worldview. So as long as this keeps being something that, it, that it's uh, effective for them, they will, they will continue to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's pretty much the sad truth about social media, right? It makes it very easy to, to um, weaponize media. So maybe trying to move us back to a more positive note. Do you mm -hmm. think it's possible to um, weaponize social media for good? In other words, how, how efficient is media to affect positive change, you think? Wow, this is a wonderful, this is a wonderful question in the sense that 
I kind of feel that we have learned through the years, at least in the fact-checking community, that it is kind of naive to expect people to come to us in the sense of, I have this wonderful fact-checking website and people will come and read it and they will just learn and they will, you know, not to engage in this information anymore. That is, uh, that is not how the real world works. You need, you, there is that expectation of people coming to you is never going to materialize. You have to find people and you have to find audiences where they already are, where they like to spend their time. That's where social media comes in, especially because, um, I mean, I am 37, so I, I have had a bit of both worlds, like the old world where, where media was much more monolithic and, and, and much more controlled in that way. And, and sometimes they fell for disinformation, but the whole thing was less fragmented. So, so general narratives were kind of having an easier time to, 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 to go about. But right now we have to be in a million, for, for a fact checker in particular, we have to be in a million different places. You, you gotta be, you gotta be everywhere. This is our aim, which we know is, is certainly not very realistic, but at least we try. There's gotta be fact checking everywhere where there is disinformation. And where is this information? Plainly everywhere, every single place you can think of. So we try to be really everywhere. We are on our website for sure, but we are on TikTok. Uh, luckily it's not me doing it, but, but we have people who knows how to do it. Um, we are on traditional media. We are on schools. We are in universities. We are in uh, elderly centers. We try to do things on the street. We, we, we try to be everywhere because that's the only way where you can, you know, expect to have an impact, I would say. Because um, if you think about it, the other guys, the, the guys producing this information, they are, they are going with a, with a very clear advantage into this because they, they can produce things, content that is as emotional, as uh, interesting, as colorful as they like, because they don't have to respect the truth. So we are already like one step behind in that sense. So the only way for us is to be very good at our jobs, be everywhere, uh, you know, in the hope the people that is consuming this information uh, that comes to see our work as well. And, uh, and, and to be really, really good at building communities, because really these people is also very good at building communities and are mobilizing people, are, are creating this kind of, of, of uh, supporting groups. And, and we need to be much better at that. We, we are doing and trying, but, but still that's, that's, I think that's something for, for everyone in, in civil society dealing with this information. Like we need as many allies as, as we can use. I completely agree, Carlos, and, and we all need to support and work with each other as much as possible because our level of coordination, I think, is not, not up to the same level as their level of coordination. But I, I'd like to dig a little bit deeper into online communities and how you nurture them and, and, and use them. It's not a very nice word, but you know what I mean. And specifically, I'd love you to tell our listeners about your database of superpowers. <laughs> Thanks for asking about that. Yeah, we are super proud of that. So for us, we were, from the very beginning, we were a very, a very much community center approach against this information. So we have this idea, almost, almost everyone who was in, in Aldita from the early days, we, we came from traditional media. 
from this notion of identifying what is important for the audiences and then deliver to them. But it was very early in the process that we decided to kind of change this approach and say, okay, if we do this top-down way of thinking about this information, first of all, we are gonna be putting our biases upfront in the sense that we are gonna be investigating and debunking what I think is important. And uh, to be honest, I might not I might not be a perfect reflection of society. No one is, but, but me particularly, I do represent like the usual audience of fact of traditional fact checking. Like I am, I have a higher education, I care about politics and all that. And we kind of saw so many, so many initiatives against this information that were really preaching to the core in some way, like only, only focusing on that a small slice of society that is already very well informed, that is already very much aware of what is happening. And they, you know, plainly the people that, that cares a lot about, you know, whatever the prime minister said yesterday, as opposed to what that person said two days ago. And this is important, don't get me wrong. I, 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 am, I, I am a political junkie, I, I love it, but that is not mainly where most people in society is. So we try to do a, a different thing, like let, you know, let people tell us what they feel is this information, what they, what it has been uh, close to, 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 you know, to, to getting them, uh, you know, they, they find that could be misleading or, or, or so, or they have questions about. So we, we said, we need our community to help us in our work of detecting possible disinformation, you know, the first step before actually investigating it. Like let us let let them tell that tell us what is useful for them in terms of uh, debunking what they want to be investigated in depth, right? So we started with that community center approach, and then community kind of started permeating all of what we did. So the the, the next the next thing we we thought about is like no, but this this wonderful community that is helping us, um, you know, detecting this information, they should also be helping us in disseminating this information, right? Because we can do kind of a contract the, the, the way we saw this. Like we allow people and we give them um, ways to do it in the sense of tip lines and other ways. We allow people and we encourage them to send us the kind of things that they have, uh, you know, suspicion about it or something. But in, we will do it for free, but we will come back to them and tell them, like this, this we actually do like on private messaging and, and in every network. We tell them, okay, you asked us about this thing. Now here is the debunk. Now, please, the only thing we ask from you is that you share that, particularly in the place where you found it. So if this hoax came to you on a family text group, go back there and share the link because there might be another five or six people there that we, we are not reaching otherwise. And they honestly think this is true and it's not. So that, that there was like the two main ways to, to, to include our community. And then we went all the way and we decided, yeah, but why don't we take advantage of that wonderful community of thousands that support our work? And we asked them to participate as sources in the debunking itself. And that's when superpowers came along. So 
the idea was, if we are able to build a database of our community, 100% voluntary, where they sign up and they say, my name is this, and these are my skills, and this is something that is verifiable, then we can have a database where we can look for those skills when we need them. We can actually use those superpowers. And superpowers are gonna come in very different ways. So for example, we are gonna have astrophysicists. I have a PhD in German literature of the 19th century. And that all comes handy when you have, you know, to debunk something or to investigate something that is within that area of expertise. And that is a very valuable source that is already committed to help you. But then there are much more simple skills that are so rare and so wonderful that they have been the most helpful. For example, someone getting in in the database and saying, uh, I speak Arabic. That is wonderful because that allows you to do the banks of, of many disinformation that have text in Arabic. Or sometimes it's, uh, I don't know, I'm a plumber. There will come, you know, the day always comes when you need a plumber to, to respond to a to an investigation, a hoax that is about plumbing. Or sometimes we have used people, uh, we have, you know, asked them from help because they, because all they said was, I live in this city. And then we would have something to debunk in that city. And it was, can you do us a, a small favor and go walk into this address in your city and just take a picture of the building so we can know if whatever that hoax is claiming is for real that it was in this place. So it was like the, not the final because we will find other ways, but a, a kind of a culmination of, of this approach to use community and, and to, you know, use frankly the tools that the other side is, is, is using with, with so much success. So we, we, we are happy about that really. Me too, Carlos. That, that sounds like a wonderful approach. And um, before we jump to questions from our participants today, um, one more question for you, Carlos. Since we've got a nice community of people working in the same field in this room and listening at home, um, do you have any final tips in, in campaigning, becoming more loud as a community on the internet? I do have one, and it's, uh, and it's sometimes a little counterintuitive, but, but I think it's useful, and it goes to that sense of, um, of community, really, which is when you are about to approach a disinformation content or campaign, there is always this um, temptation of saying, nobody will believe this. Like, like I, don't even, I don't even have to get my hands dirty uh, denying this because really no one will, would believe it. Well, you could be surprised, surprised by what people believe honestly. And sometimes part of the problem is not that they are naive, is that no one is offering the, the opposite side. Not, not, no one is offering the counter argument. So sometimes I, I understand perfectly the value of not uh, amplificating things that are really not very widely shared or whatever. But if you start seeing that there is this particular piece of disinformation that is making the rounds, and a lot of people is discussing it, it's, it's, it's good to get, to get your hands dirty. It's good to address it and not to ignore it because we have offered the banks on, uh, I always use this, this example because I love it. We have offered the banks, for example, about, no, it's not true that this mosquito bite 
can get you pregnant. This is something that would be loved at every one of my previous jobs in serious newsrooms, if you want to call it like that. Because I mean, who is gonna who is gonna believe that you can you know get pregnant from a mosquito bite? But a lot of people were were believing it, or at least they have some reasonable suspicion that this might be true. So sometimes you gotta you gotta not to rely entirely on who you are or, or, or your level of education or expertise in this information. Because most people don't have the luxury as I have to read the papers and to reflect on those things. Most people really have very busy lives where information or even leisure, if you want to call it more generally, represents really a very small part of their day. And the opportunities to reach them are few. And, and, and so, so I think it's important in that to keep, you know, to, to, to get rid of that elite notion of, you know, not getting involved and, 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 and try to, to, to speak to a larger audience than the usual audience that have cared about these issues deeply uh, in, the, in the last few years. So that, that would be my main tip. <laughs> Thanks, Carlos. I don't see any questions in the chat. So it, I think we can wrap up a, a lovely conversation with you. Thanks so much for sharing um, the great work Maldita does, Carlos. It's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And thank you for joining us today as participants and listeners for the special episode of Zooming in on Hates featuring Julia Moser, EU Public Policy Manager at Twitter and Carlos Hernandez. Echevarria, Head of Public Policy and Institutional Development from Maldita, Spain. Thank you both for joining us today as well. And while we're talking about building communities, if anybody hasn't signed up for our EOOH newsletter, please do. Um, we'll let you know about upcoming episodes of Zooming In on Hate, but other insights from our dashboard and from our experts. So do sign up www.eooh.eu. And a special shout out to our funder, the European Commission's Rights, Equality and Citizenship Programme by DG Justice. So thanks a million, everybody. Thanks for giving you, giving us your time and hopefully see you at the next webinar. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>